Well, happy Father's Day. All right, thanks. There you go. You are awake. All right, good. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Mostly awake. All right, yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for choosing to worship with us today. My name is Scott, if we haven't met before. And uh, we have been working our way through the book of James um, over the last several months together. We're kind of coming to a close. We're at the last chapter in the book of James. And we're going to talk about James, but because it is Father's Day, um, I did have someone this last week give me a few dad jokes to share with you. Thank you, Roger Button. Um, <laughs> and since I have you here and you're a captive audience, you just get to endure, okay? So here's just a couple of jokes just for fun because it is Father's Day. First of all, how is this one? Why couldn't the bicycle stand up on its own? Because it was too tired. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> Why is a giraffe such a good father? Because he's someone you can look up to. All right, so there's some laughs and some groans. That's the way it works. Okay, that's how it goes. Okay. Um, Why can't your nose be 12 inches long? Because then it would be a foot. All right, this is good. You guys are with me on this. All right, okay. <laughs> a couple, just a few more. I've got you here, so you can't get away. All right, I've got you. Dad jokes are coming. All right, here we go. Um, here's another one. Um, here's a story about a, a, a little boy who was at the dinner table, and um, they were eating together, and the little boy says to his dad, Dad, um, is, are, are, are bugs good to eat? And the dad's like, no, let's not talk about that. That's gross. Let's not talk about that at the dinner table right now, okay? So you continue to eat the meal. And afterwards, the dad comes back to the little boy and says, okay, so what was it that you were interested in asking me? And the little boy says, oh, don't worry about it. There was a bug in your soup, but it's not there anymore. <laughs> Good one. This is all for, this is for the grandfathers, okay? The grandfathers, the story of a little girl who's sitting on grandfather's lap. And grandpa's reading a, a book to her. And she's enjoying the book, but, you know, she just is a little girl and she gets distracted by things. And she just takes, takes these moments intermittently as grandpa's reading the book to reach out and touch his face with her hand. And then she goes back and she touches her face. And again, she reaches up while he's reading and touches his face and then her face. And eventually she stops and says, Grandpa, did, did God make you? And he says, yes, God made me. A long time ago, God made me. And then she says, well, that's good. Well, but Grandpa, did, did God make me too? And, and he says to her, yes, uh, God made you too, not that long ago. And then she looks at Grandpa, and she touches his face and touches hers, and she says, God's getting much better at it now, isn't he? <laughs> All right, one last one. <laughs> one last one. All right, it's so a little boy, and this is, this is a good one. He comes up to the pastor of the church, and this little boy comes up to the pastor in the church and says, Pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. And the pastor says, wow, that's, that's very generous of you, very kind of you. Well, but why is it that you want to give me money when you grow up? And he says, because my daddy says, you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. <laughs> All right, there we go. Okay, so... <laughs> it's good to laugh, isn't it? And it's good to laugh actually with the whole uh, money thing a little bit too because 
today's passage, uh, James gets very, very direct about money and about wealth and possessions. And I don't know what it is, but we um, have a tendency to get pretty uncomfortable with that topic. We don't like being challenged when it comes to money and our possessions and our wealth. And it's precisely that, that, that resistance that we have, which I think is why Jesus um, doesn't shy away from it. He's very direct when it comes to conversations about money, about wealth and possessions. And you might say, well, why is that? Is he obsessed with it? No, he's not obsessed with it, but he knows that we are. And so he just, he, he just directly speaks to it because... Again, God's not, he's not short on resources, okay? I'll just say, I'll just say that. He's not short on resources, but uh, he is very much concerned about our hearts. That's what he's concerned about. And he knows that wealth, money, possessions has a way of stealing away our hearts. And so that's why Jesus speaks to our wealth and our money and our possessions. That's why James does it as well. And James' great concern of course, is that we um, understand how it is that we are to function a life of faith, a genuine life of faith, lived out in practice in all sorts of arenas of life, and even when it touches our money. So the question today is, how does our, um, how does our faith work with our wealth, with our money, with our possessions? And this is an important one, and it's an important one because, again, like, like I said earlier, it can steal away at our hearts. It can be a real test of our faith. John Steinbeck, uh, a famous author, ha- wrote a letter to um, a diplomat, and he, in the letter, he makes this very unique statement, and I'll just read it for you. He says this, a strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Isn't that telling? There's something to that, because it's, and there's truth there, right? A culture that becomes more decadent has a greater risk of moral decay. Do you believe that? Yeah, it happens. We're living in that. A culture that becomes more decadent, that has more, there's, more, there's a greater risk of moral decay. And that's, that's what's taking place. And so James is, is very concerned that we have faith and a true test of our faith comes when we have plenty, when we have much. And how we deal with the much that we have is a true test of our faith. And I know that sometimes we think the opposite. We think to ourselves, really the truest test of faith is how can I trust God when I have very little? When I'm poor, when I'm destitute, when I'm suffering, that's when my faith is really tested. But James says, no, that's not the only time your faith is tested. Your faith is also tested when you have a whole lot. When you have plenty, your faith is also tested. Because there's so much that comes with the, the, the reality of having much with much comes greed, which much comes self-centered, which much comes that moral decay, all of those things. So the great test of our faith is how do we then live with very little and how do we live with very much a life of faith that's practiced, that's honoring to God. 
So James is going to speak to this. And actually, it's not the first time that James speaks to us. He is going to speak to both these things in chapter 5. But it's not the first time that he's brought up this topic. If you go back to James chapter 1, he talked about this earlier. Let me just show you. In James chapter 1, verse 9, this is what he says. Believers in humble circumstances. Humble circumstances, he's talking about the poor. If you're poor, if you have very little, humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So he's saying, hey, even if you have a little, you still can rejoice and take pride in the fact that you're rich and you have the, the, uh, enriched in, in Christ. And that's what he's saying there. But then the very next verse, he says, okay, now rich. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildfire. So he, wildflower. So he's saying, listen, the rich... Don't take pride in how much you have. Be proud in, again, it, that's, that's a cure humiliation because all of that stuff will go away. So he's already addressed it. Then now in chapter 5, he comes back to this very topic of wealth and poverty, suffering. And that's what he does in this, next, um, the ne- this chapter. And so just to kind of show you, James 1.9, he brings up the poor. Uh, James 1.10.11, he talks about the rich. Then he goes in James 5, 1 through 6, which we're going to be talking about today, the rich. And then next week we'll be looking at 5, 7 through 12, which is about the poor, suffering, and uh, the struggle that comes with all of that. So if you've been following along, you've got A, B, B, A. You see that? So this is where he's going, and this is what he's talking about. And today's passage is really focused in on how do we have faith when we also have wealth? How does that, our faith integrate into uh, that how we live practically, daily, and it's tested in a very real way. And so what we want to do is take a look at this passage together. It's James chapter 5. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the passage um, so you can follow along with us. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's okay. Hopefully you have that handout on your way in here. The passage is printed for you there as well, um, with, along with some notes, and you can follow along with us. So James chapter 5, let's stand together in honor of God's word. We'll read this whole passage, these, all these six verses here, and then we'll come back and we'll look at it verse by verse. But beginning now in verse 1 all the way to verse 6 says this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We'll take a look at it together. Starting in, in verse 1 here, James gives a very strong warning to those who are wealthy. And so if you're a note taker and you're following along, it's a strong warning to the wealthy. And really, in, in terms of passages of Scripture, this one is so strong. The warning, the challenge, the indictment that James brings to those who have wealth and have money, it's very strong. And so we just have to pay attention here. And let me just, let me just show you. This is what he says in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. So he's addressing the rich, and he's saying, weep and wail. So he's saying, mourn. Why? Because of the misery that is coming on you. There's a judgment that is coming if you've put all of your security, all of your hope in your money and your possessions, your wealth. Guess what? It's a dead end. 
So weep and wail, mourn, because it is not going to get you what you think. We think sometimes when we have more, we'll be more secure. But James is just being very upfront and saying, start crying now because it's a lot less secure than you think it is. And it's not just less secure in this present life, but has no value in terms of securing your eternal life. And so he's just very, very honest and saying, weep, wail, mourn, it's misery. If that's where you're putting your hope, you're planting all of your security for this life or the life to come, it's, it's a loss. It's a dead end. So that's what he's um, really being clear, clearly saying and being very honest about it. And this would honestly be... Um, uh, quite shocking um, for many, many people because in the first century, they, if you were rich, the thought was you are more favored by God. And many people still think this way today, that if you're rich, God must love you more. You're more favored by God. And the question is, well, why? Well, because they're rich. That's why. God must love you. You must have greater favor if you are wealthy. And then conversely, if you're poor, if you're sick, if there's struggle, then you must have done something wrong and God doesn't like you as much. But that is not true. And so this would have been shocking because he's going after the rich, the people that everyone was like, oh, they're the blessed ones. And, Jesus is, and, and James is saying, no, listen, you're missing it. It's, 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 um, there's something more. God is more concerned about our our spiritual condition than our material and physical condition. And that, that's just important for us to, to get. Because the, the other question that we might have is, well, does God have something then against rich people? If it's not that he favors them more, is there something against rich people that God has, against wealth? And the answer to that is also no. Because again, God's more interested in our hearts. He's more interested in our spiritual condition than our material and physical condition. And so just to kind of help with that, um, I found this chart uh, kind of helpful. This was something I, I found Chuck Swindoll did a good job just kind of laying out four different kinds of ways that we see poverty and wealth um, in the Bible and just in life. And so I'll just, point, I'll just point them out to you. There's the material side, the material condition, and then the spiritual condition. And so there's the four different categories here. First is the poor, poor. So you can be poor physically uh, or materially and poor spiritually. That is, you have very little on this earth, but you also have very little in terms of, you have nothing in terms of relationship with God. And so you're, you're poor and you're ungodly. And it's a, it's, a, it's a miserable place to be. Then there's the rich materially, and the, and, but they're poor spiritually. That is, they have lots of wealth, but they're living life without God. They're godless and rich. And that also is an is a unfortunate position to be in, again, because they're putting all their hope in their riches and they're missing the greater riches, which is the spiritual riches that God has for us in Christ. Then there's a third, uh, third condition here. There's the, the poor uh, rich. And that's if you're materially poor, but you're rich spiritually. And this is, this, is, this is good. This is what God wants for us. Again, he's more concerned about the spiritual side of things. And then there's the, um, the rich uh, materially and rich spiritually. And so the focus here that you need to see is that God is mostly interested in this section right here. That we may be poor or we may be rich, but he wants us to be rich, godly, in terms of our understanding of who he is, the riches that he has for us eternally, and also presently by who he is, that we cling to him and not to stuff, whether we have a lot or we have a little. And this is an important thing. And I'll just give some examples because um, sometimes uh, in, it's helpful to see, in, in like even in scripture, by the way, 
the materially poor. Who was materially poor in Scripture? Maybe one of the most famous people. Jesus, by the way, was very poor. <laughs> he was born in poverty, born in a manger um, in Bethlehem. He was very, very poor, obviously spiritually rich. The, the widow was very, the, the, um, the, the destitute widow who gave all that she had. She was very poor, but she was very rich in terms of her uh, connection and relationship with God. A modern-day example is uh, Corrie ten Boom. She had this to say. Corrie ten Boom, by the way, was a, um, a Holocaust survivor. She was uh, captured and sent to a concentration camp, lost everything, um, but her faith in Christ was just so remarkable. She lived to tell the story. Her sister died in the concentration camp, but she lost so much. But listen to what she had to say. She said this, I have held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. What an incredible attitude, right? Because she recognizes there's something greater to hold on to than the riches of possessions and the things that I had because I lost it all. But what she clung to was Jesus, and she experienced the richness of a relationship with him. And, it, and, and she, as a result, has impacted thousands of, of lives. Then there's the rich, rich. And this is, uh, again, in the Bible, you see people who are very wealthy, but also very spiritually um, rich as well. So Abraham, for instance, was very wealthy, the father of faith. There's Boaz, was a wealthy businessman, and um, part of his lineage is, is Jesus. It's just an amazing story of, of, of his character, um, but he was a wealthy businessman as well. There's, in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea. There's Lydia. Again, wealthy, influential leaders who were, had a heart towards God. They were godly and wealthy. So there's not a... Um, uh, a difference there. It's, it's the, the richness of, of a spiritual life that God is interested in. But I know that sometimes we might look at a list like this, by the way, and many, many people would categorize themselves in the third category. And they, feel, they don't feel like they have very much, but maybe you feel rich towards God. That, I, okay, I have God, but I have very little. But I just want to challenge you for a moment on that because I know for, for us, um, we may think, oh, I don't have very much. And we may, you may feel like I'm kind of, kind of on the poorer side. But listen, our understanding of poor versus the biblical understanding of poor is very different. People in the Bible who were poor had nothing. They were homeless, destitute, helpless, hopeless. They didn't have food. They didn't have shelter. They didn't have clothes. That's the poor that we see in the Bible. And in fact, even in our own society here, we have a, a poverty line but you measure our poverty line, if you're at poverty line, then internationally look at things, we're quite well off. Does that make sense? So we are in a very rich culture, in a rich place, and I get that many of us feel stretched and strapped and feel like we have very little, but we just have to step back and say in the big picture, in lots of ways, we have plenty. Um, and with that plenty comes a responsibility. And so we have to hear the warning of this passage to say, okay, there's a strong warning for those who have a lot. So, so we, we really need to hear the words of James so that we can be responsive to him and have real, true, genuine faith and handle our wealth well. So let, let me just go back to uh, that, that verse. It says, uh, says that, oh, actually the second verse. 
It says this, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the, the last days. And so if you want to fill in the blank, if you're a note taker, the, the kind of the one sentence uh, kind of summary there for this one is a word against hoarding. A word against hoarding here in this uh, verse. So going back to the verse, look at it with me just again. It says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. The idea is this, that they've, they've accumulated, people who are wealthy, who have a lot, they accumulate, they store, they gather, they collect, and they collect so much that eventually all the stuff that you've collected begins to rot and begins to corrode. And we live in a culture, we live in, a, in, a, in America, and um, we don't want to think of ourselves as hoarders um, in maybe an extreme way, but many of us still struggle with the challenge of, of wanting to store things, hold on to things, collect things. I mean, as Americans, we have, a, we have houses that we store things in. Then we have our garages that we store more things in. Then we rent storage units that we can like store the stuff that we can't store in our house or garage. I mean, that's a whole lot. We have a tendency to want to store stuff. And it's not just stuff we think about clothes. Many of, many of us have um, closets filled with clothes. And around the world, there are people who, um, that we, by, by, filled with clothes that we don't wear, right? But there are people around the world who have one item, a couple items, and that's what they wear, rotate you know, every other day or whatever it might be. Um, we have closets that are bigger than the home that Jesus and James grew up in. That's just, we just have to just take that into perspective and understand why are we holding on to this stuff? And we do that with lots of things. We have collectibles that we collect that someday our kids or grandkids are going to sort through and go, why did they collect all this stuff? That will be the big question. And it will tell a story about you at some point down, down the road. And so we have to just be honest about that. And we have to be honest about the, the, just the, the tendency that we have to hold on to things. And um, it's important. It says your gold and your silver has corroded. It's, it's wasting away. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. That is these last days. That is you only have a little bit of time. And most of us have um, more stuff than we have time. Do you realize that? And so James is just being very honest, being very blunt and saying, listen, the little bit of time you have, do you really need all this stuff? And he says in this passage, your stuff will be a test, will testify against you. It will testify against you. That's a little bit of a scary thought. And you're saying to yourself, honestly, what's wrong with storing things? What's wrong with holding on to stuff? Well, here's, here's what's wrong with it. It's not helping you by holding on to it, and it's not helping others by holding on to it. Do you realize that? I have in my garage a bin, and in that bin is a whole bunch of cell phones, Cell phones that I would use, and then it's, oh, i got to upgrade, so put it in the bin. I don't know why I put it in the bin, but I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'll use it again someday. Have I ever used it again someday? No, and now I have decade worth of cell phones that are now so old, no one can use. It's obsolete, but in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I just give it away to someone so it could be used? right? But that's hoarding. That's holding on. It's not helping me, and it's not helping anyone else either. It testifies against me because I was greedy, and I held on to it, and I did not need to at that point. And so it's just a, a, 
James is just being honest, being honest with us, saying, hey, you may not think you're holding on to stuff, but it will testify against you. Many of you have had to clean out houses of parents or grandparents, and you have all this stuff. It tells a story. And what if by the end of your life you were able to say all that stuff's given away, all that stuff has been, been productively used or sold off and given to help other people instead of a big burden for the person who has to follow you? So your stuff will testify against you, and not just the stuff here, but there is a judgment that we all will also face to say that God will be saying, how did you use the stuff that I gave you? So there's a, there's a double testifying there, a testimony that we're giving to our kids and our grandkids. There's also a judgment that we're saying, okay, this is the stuff that God's saying, did you use it wisely? And there's, a, there's an accountability that comes with it. And so it's important that we get that. Now, the next verse, James doesn't let up, by the way. Look what he goes to next. Verse 4 says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So if you're a note taker and you want to fill in the next blank, it's this, that um, a, this is a word against stealing. A word against stealing. And uh, this is an important one because James is speaking to the people who are wealthy typically in this time were merchants or landowners. And so he's talking about the landowners here, the people who had the property, who had, had hired people um, who were just laborers to work in their fields, to work in the property. And they would promise them, hey, you work and here's a day's wage. Um, here you work and here's a day's wage. But what would tend to happen and what, what the landowners were criticized for is that they would make promises, here's what I'll pay you, here's your wages, and then at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the harvest, nothing. They wouldn't pay up. They got greedy and they wanted to hold it to themselves. And here's the problem. The workers, the laborers, had no recourse. There's nothing they could do. They were helpless. They couldn't fight because then the wealthy would just fight back and they had more resources and there was no way of gaining ground. And so it was a terrible, um, you know, tragedy really in terms of how people were treated um, by, by the landowners, the wealthy. And here's the interesting thing that they get stuck on, that we get stuck on too, is it wasn't that they were just stealing, like I'm going to take your stuff from your house and bring it to mine, but it wasn't giving what was owed, what they deserved. And it isn't, it's a challenge for anyone who is an employer who's looking for loopholes or ways to cut or just try to pull more in for myself and, and not give what the people deserve. And, and there's a challenge there because it's interesting that the people who are the wealthiest also struggle sometimes with being the greediest. Isn't that interesting? And sometimes the people who have the very least are the most generous. And so he's saying, listen, you, you're, I'm a, you're, you're being, the, this is a strong word against stealing from taking from other people, not giving one what they owe or what they deserve. But now go back to this verse again. It says, but listen, here's the word of hope here. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So here's the encouraging part. Um, and maybe the scary part, if you're an employer um, and you're looking for loopholes and you're taken away, guess what? The, the cries of those who are being taken advantage of are not lost on God, that he hears those cries. And so there's comfort if you've been taken advantage of. There's comfort if you're, you're being um, ripped off in some way. God hears that and he doesn't ignore it. 
And the other side, um, we also have to be careful that God does hear it. If you're a, a person who's um, cheap or stealing or taking or greedy, that God also hears those cries and there ultimately will be a judgment. Again, James says, weep, mourn, misery is coming to you if your God is your money. And so it's important that we hear the challenge of this passage all the way around. Then verse 5, he keeps on going. You have lived on earth in luxury um, and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. If you're a note taker, this is a word against a self-centered living. A word against self-centered living. Now, if you approach life apart from God, and you just say, you know, the assumption then is everything that I have is mine. If there's no God in the picture, if, if life is, you know, you, you live, you die, and that's it, then why wouldn't you simply say, well, everything I have is for me. I've got to live for me, for my self-indulgence, because, you know, you, you live, you die, that's it, then would make sense. But he's saying, listen, there's more to life than just you. And there is an afterlife. And so how you live now matters and don't live a self-centered life. So back to five. You've lived in in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. This is a very vivid illustration. James is one of the most illustrative writers, you know, in the New Testament. Just illustration, illustration. And this was a shocking one because in 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 the ancient world, they would take a calf and a rich people, only wealthy people, by the way, could have livestock typically, um, or, or especially multiple livestock, or a way, way to f- keep it like that. So they would have to plan ahead. So they'd take a calf, they'd isolate it, they'd feed it, feed it, feed it, and of course the calf is fattening up, and eventually the calf would be slaughtered for a feast, and everyone would just se- for a celebration. That's the idea. So it would take forethought, it would take planning, it would take wealth all those things. And James is saying, listen, you're fattening yourself for slaughter. That's the picture. And it would have been a very vivid and shocking image for the people who are listening to James or reading this letter. They're thinking they're planning ahead for their future for celebration. And he's saying, you're planning for your own humiliation. That's what's coming. Because all of that's going to be taken away, all of it won't last, and there will be a judgment for how you managed your resources, and did you manage it well? And by the way, if it's all, the assumption is everything for my own consumption, that is not managing your resources well. So he's simply saying, yes, you're just fattening yourself up, it's all about you, you're at the center, you're in the middle of things, and you're missing it. And so he's, he's very clear there. Then verse 6 says this, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So this is where it gets really, um, really intense because he says, listen, those who are rich, you're condemning and murdering people. And that's like going way out there, right? If you're a note taker, it's this, it's a word against condemnation and cruelty. And Here's the crazy thing, that sometimes when we have wealth, when people have wealth, when they have money, they think they can get away with things other people can't. Have you noticed that? They think that they have a little bit more, I don't know, leeway or ability to just do what they want because they can, because everything's been given to them and they take advantage. And so he's just simply saying, 
Now you've gone from not self-centered living, but you're going to um, immor- like extreme and gross immoral living because you're doing whatever you want. You're treating people as if they're all your servants and slaves um, because you have a lot. So you're condemning, you're murdering, you're killing, and it's just, it can get way out of control. And um, it, it's, an, it's a, just a challenge to, to people who have a lot that think they can get away with a lot, um, and you're, you're, you're actually, in many ways, very, very, um, you're putting yourself in great harm and jeopardy. Do I have that next verse? Do I have James um, 2 on there, or is, is I, I'll come back to that. Is it there? James 2, 6, 7, listen to this. Um, it's talked about earlier. It says this, is not the rich who are exploiting you are not they the, the, they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they the, not the ones who have been blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? So it's, he's talked earlier about the rich exploiting people, condemning them, and being cruel to them. And so he's saying, listen, this is, this is a challenge that you can't ignore because when money, wealth, possessions becomes your God, then people become tools. And you can either love <laughs> your money um, and use people, or you can love people and use your money to love them as well. But you can't have both. And so he just, he just is very, very clear and very honest. So with all that said, the question is, well, how do then I approach my money, my wealth, my possessions, all that I have in, in faith? What does it look like? And so let me just step back for a moment and give you three approaches to your money to wealth, to the possessions you have. And you can kind of just think through your own life here for a moment. There's one approach, which is this. What's mine is mine. And that's the, the approach that James is talking about earlier, the hoarding approach. What's mine is mine. I've got to hold on to it. I've got to get it. And it's a, it's a selfish, self-centered approach. But, and it's the approach, again, the assumption that we have is like everything is for me my consumption. And if, if life is, you know, live, die, um, that's it, then of course you would live this way. But he's, this is an approach, but it, it's, it's certainly not a biblical approach. This, a second approach is this, what's yours is mine. <laughs> Maybe you've said this before to other people. Um, what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, all that stuff. But the idea here is this, is that when we, when we have money and possessions, and it's, again, all about us, then we look at what others have because what we have is not enough. And we look at what others have and we covet, we're jealous, we look for, we just, it, what we have isn't enough, we need to have what they have or what we've promised to them we want to hold on to because, again, it's all about me. And it's, the first thought is that I own everything I own and this thought is I want everything you own too. And that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, James 4 talks about the, the strife and the challenges that comes from this. Uh, ver- verse 1, James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You're not looking to God to provide for you in your resources. You're looking what other people have, and you covet, you want, and you, you want to steal. And it becomes a very stingy way of living. So those are the two approaches that are not good. Here's a third approach. It's a better approach. It's this one. What's mine is his. What's mine is his. That is, it's not that I own everything I own, or I want everything you own. It's um, God owns everything. I just manage it for him. 
That's a whole different perspective. And James talks about this earlier as well. Let me just show you back in chapter 1. It says this, every good and perfect gift is from what? From above, coming down from the Father of heaven lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What we have is a gift. And God has given us a gift. And he's simply saying, hey, this is yours, but it's yours to manage because it's owned by me. And it's a different orientation, a different way of living. And it puts faith into practice when it comes to our wealth. It centers us when we recognize where our wealth comes from. So then the question is, well, how do I apply it? What do I do with this? Let me give you three things to think through uh, as, we, as we wrap up our time. The first one is this, hold wealth loosely. Hold wealth loosely. What we want to do, again, what's mine is mine. And I want to hold on to it, and I want to get more. Um, and it's all about what can I store here. But again, we have more stuff than we have time on this planet. So hold it loosely. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's not about who can accumulate the most stuff here. Why? Because moths and vermin destroy where thieves break in and steal, it goes away. It's rotting, decaying. It will be taken away. And even if you don't, it's not stolen, it will be passed along to someone else who eventually, you know, give it away or do something with it. So he's just being honest. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Hold your stuff loosely. It's decaying. But then take the resources that God has given you to manage and use it for eternal purposes. Use it for kingdom living. So you're thinking now strategically, that is taking your faith and saying, how does my faith in God inform how I spend, what I invest in, how I use these resources? It is a completely different way of thinking. Not what's mine is mine, what's yours is mine. It's God, this is yours. How can I live wisely and hold it loosely? Second one is this, uh, to steward wisely. Steward wisely. That God owns everything that we're managing. And it takes, um, when, we, when we recognize that, that we're a steward of his resources, it makes us think a little bit harder about how we spend, doesn't it? If I was to give you my credit card and I, and I said, hey, here's what I need you to do. I just need you to, you know, you're in a tough spot. You're, you know, things are tight. Here's my credit card. Hey, use it to help you get through this week um, because I want to be generous and care for you. Now, when you recognize this is someone else's resources that he's someone's letting me use or manage or borrow or whatever for, or, or to help in the certain circumstance, you're probably going to be thinking about what you spend and don't spend a little bit more carefully, aren't you? Um, when I give my credit card to my kids, I hope they're thinking that, right? There's those moments where I'm like, okay, go to the movies. All right, here you go. Here's a card. You whatever you can pay for, it, but you know, don't go crazy on buying every single, every single snack in the, in the movie theater, because then we'll all be broke, right? So that's, that's, 
there's a sense in which if you're managing someone else's money and there's accountability to it because it will show up on a spreadsheet or will come back, you're thinking differently about how you spend and how you invest and what you do with it. And so we as stewards of the resource that God owns, but he's given to us to manage, we then have a higher level of accountability, responsibility. We're thinking differently. How is it that I can wisely use this instead of frivolously use this for myself? It's a different way of living. It's a different way of thinking. We're thinking about, well, how am I giving? How am I spending? How am I saving? How am I investing? All of those things come into greater focus when we, when we recognize whose, whose funds we are managing for this time that we have. Then the third one is this, to give generously, to give generously. This is an important one for us to get that it's important for us to get outside of ourselves and to, and to push past the assumption that it's all for my consumption. But if God has given us resources and he's blessed us, and many of us have been blessed, that we begin to say, how can I use what God has blessed me with to bless others? And it's a different way. Not can I take from others, but how can I care for others, invest in others, bless others? And you know it. This, this true, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's true, whether that's your time, whether that's your, um, your talents or your treasure. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. In this passage specifically, James is talking about our treasure, the resources that God has given us, we have to be thinking to ourselves, how can we give generously? And many of you have thought that through as, as you've called South Hills Church your home church. You give generously. You tithe regularly. In the scripture, it talks about a tithe. And I know many people who are like new to the church, like, what is a tithe? Tithe just simply means a tenth. That a tenth of what you receive, you say, God, I automatically give that back to you. Because it's a point of worship. It's a point of saying, God, this is your resources, and my faith says I am giving this back to you as an act of worship, as an act of sacrifice, to remind myself, God, you're Lord, I'm not. When we do the offering baskets, it's not to make you feel uncomfortable, but it is a moment for us to be reminded to put our, the, the, the idol that we hold on to so often, money, in a basket before the Lord who owns the whole world, Right? and has given you all the resources. It's a moment of worship. It's a reminder of saying, yes, my idol goes before the God who stands above it all. That's important for us to get. And some of you do your giving on, you know, online or in a basket or online. Uh, our family, for many, many years, Lisa and I have done, as soon as we could do recurring giving online, that's what we went with. And it's, it works well for us. And it always comes out of our account at the first of the month. Because it's a moment for us to say it's our first fruits. It's what comes in first, what goes out first to God. Our tithe goes immediately out. And then we're not thinking the rest of the month, how can we use it? It's like, no, that's God's. That's for him. We want to use it for kingdom purposes. The rest, what you've given to us, God, we got to be thinking about how we're saving, how we're spending, how we're investing. That's, that's, what this, that's what giving generously looks like and recognizing that we're stewards of the resources that God's given to us. We also have to be thinking about moments and opportunities to care for others. And many of you do that. This next week, some of you are giving your time, you're investing money and resources to make a great experience for kids. 
And when you give here regularly, you're helping, by the way, with all those resources. You're investing in our children's ministry. You're investing in our students. You're investing in our missions ministries. You're investing in our community outreach. That You're giving generously in a way that says, God, we want to use it for kingdom purposes. And so we're very, very grateful for that. And the question then comes back to, well, why give? Well, it always comes back to, we give because Christ gave his life for us. Generosity is not something that we muster up because it's something we have to do, but it's because of something that God has shown us and what he has done for us. Let me just show you 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. What does that mean? That means that God, in his love for us, sent his son from heaven, right? And he came down to live in poverty in this world for us. He gave up everything, including his life on the cross, so that by faith in his sacrifice, his gift, we could be rich. We could have forgiveness of sins. We could have salvation, and we could have the hope of heaven eternity with God the Father. Isn't that good news? We give because he first gave to us. Let's take a moment and let's thank him for that. God, we are very, very thankful for your word, how it speaks directly to us and reminds us of the things that we, we see you have already done for us, that you show us what generosity is. You show us the way to uh, not just how to live this life well, but that you also have made a path and a way for us to um, live life eternally well with you. Thank you, Lord, for the riches we receive when we receive you into our life. I pray for those here who have yet to receive you, God, that they would recognize that there's more than just what we can get in this short time we have on earth, but that you gave so much and that you offer us life, fullness. You offer us forgiveness. You offer us hope. We thank you for that, God. And you, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people, individuals, and a church who steward wisely, who also give generously because of who you are, and that you would use us as a church and as individuals who follow you to be a light for you in this community, in this world. We pray this, God, in your name. Amen.